point in my life, I almost never have to listen to one sermon that I'm not saying. So you guys are champs. It's like number four. Whew, big day. Okay, so we're going to talk fast and go quick. Uh, Final time, grandparenting. We're going to do the same thing uh, that we did with the other one, but this one even more. Like, I'm not a, a mother. I know it's hard to tell. Um, but I'm married to one and parenting together. But I'm not a grandparent. I'm not a grandparent. Well, I'd probably be disqualified for ministry if I were a grandparent at my age for multiple reasons. But I hope and pray every day to be a grandparent, and, and what I've been doing to try and compensate for my 29-year-oldness is trying to read through a lot of books from people with four, 40 years of marriage under their belt and believing grandkids. And, and I'll just say that if you are looking for people to follow, especially people to follow who are talking about culture and family, look for people with 40 years, 30 years of marriage and believing grandkids. Believing kids are great, that's awesome, but believing grandkids, it's like, they're on to something because they've been able to transmit, like Jared was saying from Deuteronomy 6, they've been able to transmit downstream uh, to their children's children. And so that's what we want to do. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, I do, I'm going to pray really quick and just ask for, for the Lord's help here and we'll, we'll get to work. Father, thank you for this time, this uh, final uh, session together. We ask for wisdom and, and God, thank you that your word uh, invites us to give that, that request to you, that any who lacks wisdom would ask from, from your uh, abundant storehouses you love to pour out wisdom. And so we do ask for that, Lord. We ask for wisdom, that you would set us on a trajectory for those of us who are younger to be godly grandparents, and for uh, the, the older saints in the room who are there or are close, um, Lord, just give them uh, so much grace in their grandparenting as they continue to parent their adult children and and now move into this next season of life. Lord, we do ask that you'd make them fruitful in it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, one of the things that we don't have a lot of are godly grandparents, right? That thing that I just described, the person you want to learn from that's 40 years of fruitful marriage and godly grandkids, Christian grandkids, that's hard to find. Uh, they're, they're, they're almost every church has a few, but they're very, very difficult to find, and particularly for younger churches. Like, uh, you guys are a church plant, and how old now? Four years. And uh, it looks like God's blessed you guys with a good um, a range, which is just such a blessing from God. I remember back when, uh, maybe 10 years ago, when we were first uh, at the starting points of the church that uh, I now pastor. I was not a pastor at the time. I was 17, and in high school... But we were the young church. We did not have older people. We did not have any grandparents. We had a lot of new converts uh, from godless, godless lineages that just, what did you say, lineologies? <laughs> you know, it was just not, um, it wasn't, we didn't have it built in. And so we could get really sad about that and, and be like a little bit mopey, I think. Like, oh, where are all the, God, where are all the godly grandparents? Or we could just get to work making them. In becoming them. Uh, one of the principles that you uh, should always respond to when you lack something in a church, in a body, is to commit to making it, okay? If we want to be, uh, if we want good vintages of wine, like I think of, I've been reading Lord of the Rings my whole life, I feel like, uh, reading it out loud for my kids again, and at the beginning of the fellowship, 
Frodo sold his house. You know, you've had time to read it. If you haven't already, I'm going to spoil it. He, uh, he, uh, he, he's sitting in bag end, his hobbit hole, and it's the last day. He's, it passes to Lobelia, his like, crotchety old, older lady in his family who's been trying to buy this house for decades. And he's sitting there, and he's drinking the last glass of the Bilbo's old Winyard's wine, which is wine that Bilbo's dad had laid up. And you do the math, and it's like 60-year-old, 70-year-old wine. And he's like, ah, she's not getting this. And so he's drinking the last. And it just makes you think, like, if you want that, the only way to get 60-year-old, well-aged wine is to start 60 years ago. And if you don't have it now, then the only thing to do is just to start laying them up now. Like, you just have to start putting away bottles and get ready for the future. And so that's what we want to do, is get to work on uh, becoming godly grandparents, uh, even before we get there. We'll start laying up the bottles now. So let's talk about the glory goal counterfeits and how the gospel relates to grandparenting as Christians. Okay, as I look through the Bible and think about the glory of grandparents, and it does show up, grandparenting is not something that you have a whole book of the Bible on anywhere, that you even have necessarily uh, these abundance of proof text sort of things about it. But if we understand the shape of the Christian household that's there in seed form anytime Paul's talking about a household or anytime Peter's talking about a household, you can see that grandparenting is there even if it's just there in principle and not yet Explicit. There are explicit texts, but but as you read through the the Bible and you look at legacy and, and old age and how to pass on through the generation to legacy of faith, uh, the glory of grandparents is is kind of like the glory of a medieval cathedral. Uh, it's it's kind of like the glory of Notre Dame Cathedral. I don't know if have any of you guys been to Notre Dame Cathedral? Couple in back. That's I have been there, but I was in third grade. Did not appreciate it. I was like, oh, good, another building where I'm not allowed to touch anything. Okay, well, I think, when is lunch? Like, that was what I remember about Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, You can tell a lot about a culture. Uh, You can tell a lot about its values and norms and uh, the shape of everything from the the way that it views households to the way that it views the economy, the whole economy, from its architecture. You can look, you can find out a lot about a culture just from looking at what it builds, and, and how it builds things. So think about the difference, um, for example, in what the average church building in the U.S. today says compared to Notre Dame Cathedral or a similar building. Okay, like the average uh, church building, I'm thinking like there's maybe a, it's maybe a strip mall rented out, maybe it's a, even they, they were telling, you were telling me that the way they built this building that we're in right now was that they did not plan on it existing for more than 50 years, right? 50 Yeah, they piled up dirt like against the wood with like a little waterproofing layer against the walls. And they were like, well, it's a church. It doesn't have to last that long. Think about, no, think about what that says. Okay, and, and I obviously, I understand that there are economic and larger cultural values at play that it's not like the average U.S. church planter had the choice between a strip mall and a medieval cathedral and they were like, I prefer the strip mall. So this isn't a condemnation of church planters or, or I met in a mattress warehouse for the majority of our church life before the building we're in now and it was glorious and good and God met with us there. It was wonderful. I'm more talking about the cultures that produce those buildings than I am about the people who in- inhabit them now. Okay, what does it say about the culture that built Notre Dame Cathedral. What does that building say about that culture? 
it, 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 to start with, it says that they believed and they planned on their great, 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 great grandkids singing there. Like, they could see that in their minds when they were building this thing. And guess what? It took 182 years to build it. They started in uh, 1163. They didn't stop building until 1345. That was when they were like, we're done. It was a whole different group of people at that point. Like, all the people that started had died, and then their kids had started, and then their kids' kids started, and their grandkids and their great-grandkids were the ones who finished the Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, One of the systemic failures of, of the culture of the last several centuries of the church in the West is this ethos that almost borders on planned obsolescence, you know, uh, like the idea that it's almost a conspiracy theory. I know that it exists for real, but it's almost a conspiracy theory that like uh, smartphone makers plan for you to have to buy a new one in two years. Like they released the software update and all of a sudden your phone was like brilliant and all of a sudden it's like, I don't, I, what time is it today? It just doesn't, it can't figure anything out. You can hardly turn the thing on. Like what happened? Planned obsolescence. They planned for you to need a new one, and so they built it to last just a set amount of time. Okay, we tend not to think in terms of the next 500 years, but more like the next five days, five weeks, five months, five years. A five-year plan to us is a long-term plan. If you go to church planting uh, seminars and uh, evaluation groups, a a lot of the time, the the, the farthest out you get is a five-year plan. What's your five-year plan for this church plan? What's your one-year, three-year, five-year plan? Those are great, by the way. You should have them. They're wise. But that's often where we stop. We're like five years out. We almost build impermanence into the foundations of our cultural values. Um, We shouldn't do that. We really shouldn't do that. We really shouldn't do that. We should be thinking in terms of centuries and generations, not months and years. So we should be thinking, I'm going to put this in your mind, we should be thinking, Christ Church Carbondale, Refuge Church in Utah, we should be thinking about this millennium. That should be our, our thing. What are we going to do this millennium? That might sound crazy, because we're 20 years into it. No, we should be thinking this millennium. And, 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 and we should be thinking about that in terms of what we're planting. What are we planting now, and what's it going to grow over 1,000 years? What's it going to grow over f- 500 years? Um, we tell our church, the elders of our church, we, we often tell our people as we're making decisions, we're aiming to make decisions not with the next six months in mind, but with the next six decades in mind. That's what we're trying to do as we lead the church is think not, will this pastoral decision make my life harder for the next six months? And most of the time our decisions do. It's like, let's change something. And <laughs> nobody's happy about that usually over the next six months. But what we're trying to do is say our ship is steered in, this, in a direction that if, if we did this for five years or 50 years, where we would be is not where we want to be. So let's do this. Let's course correct one degree this year. We don't have to course correct 20 degrees in a year and blow everybody up, but let's course correct a little. And, and, and over time, over 50 years, over 100 years, hopefully when, our, when, when my grandkids in the pulpit or whatever, that Refuge Church will be pointed a little bit closer towards that 500-year legacy and towards that kind of permanence view. If we understand the, the, the promises of the faith some of the great promises that this whole Christian thing is built on, then we would understand that that's a reasonable way to think about the church, that that's not pie in the sky, that that's a reasonable way to understand the church, that there are these promises that are like pilings driven into the bedrock of God's faithfulness, and, uh, and, there, and those are the promises that we're building a transmission of faith and culture on. Uh, one of those, just one of those promises that I want you to think about is Deuteronomy 5.
in Deuteronomy 5, um, we learn that our God is a God who delights to show his steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commands. That's what he says. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger. Now he talks about his, his judgment on those who hate him, those who reject him, visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But to those who love him, the thousandth. The thousandth. It's covenant faithfulness. Okay, generation is 40 years. I want you to think about the magnitude of that promise. Okay, the magnitude of that promise is, is a 40,000-year promise. Okay, and, and in the Bible, the, the number 1,000 is often used very symbolically to basically mean a whole lot, or like all of the things. Like when God says, I own the cattle on a 1,000 hills, he's not asking you to count until you get to the 1,000 and the first, and then be like, so these cows can be mine. Those first 1,000, those are God's cows. The 1,000 and first hill, those could be my cows. That's not what he's trying to get you to do. His point is, I own all of them. So this is a 40,000-year promise or an infinity promise, depending on how you want to think about it. And the reality is we haven't even seen that many generations since Abram. We haven't even seen... We're like maybe 10% of the way here. And so this promise is somewhat of an invitation for us to plan in terms of the next 36,000 years of human history if we want to be overly pedantic about the literality of that promise. 36,000 years or forever. We ought to be building families the way the medieval church built Notre Dame, okay? And when we see it that way, we start to see the glory of Christian grandparents, right? That we don't need a bunch of new categories. We don't need a bunch of new categories at this point. We've got our categories from fatherhood and motherhood, and the goal of this whole household thing is to be fruitful households that multiply and cover the earth and uh, cover the, the, the earth with image bearers who are at peace with God through Christ and bearing fruit and all. We already have all of that. Grandparenting at that point is just about pushing those categories into the deeper future and pushing those out further into the corners of our lives, taking advantage of a, a strategic opportunity in the shape of life as God built it, where you have peculiar freedoms and powers in or, that you can help that mission be more effective and push it further into the future than you could have without this gift of grandparents. If God had designed a world where all of us died before we saw our children's children, we wouldn't have this opportunity. But, but God built a world where we do often see our children's children and maybe even our children's children's children. Some of you, I'm sure, will see your great, great-grandkids even. Uh, I, I would be totally unsurprised if many of us saw our great and our great-great-grandkids. Okay? So grandparents know that as they uh, are a father, like people parenting with a grandparent mentality, they know that as they spank a three-year-old bottom or counsel a 12-year-old son or uh, help walk a 14-year-old daughter through uh, becoming a young woman. They know, a godly father and mother knows as they look towards grandparenting, that one of the things they're doing in doing those things is actually disciplining and counseling and helping their grandkids. They're putting their hands on this generation in front of them, knowing that that is the generation that's going to go and parent their grandkids. So again, it's about pushing the promises down further in the aim of Christian conquest. And that's, I love Christian, I like thinking about it that way because I'm a man, Christian conquest. You can call it the Great Commission if you want. I, I prefer conquest. Um, so having that in mind, let's talk about some of the goals of grandparenting. And there are four specifically that, that I'd like to, to walk through. The first is that the goal of godly grandparenting, Christian grandparenting, is basically putting the finishing work in on a godly legacy. 
It's putting the finishing work in on a godly legacy. If you've ever built a structure, um, built a house, then my, my wife and I built a house over the last couple, uh, we finished it in July, this last July, and moved in, and you, you kind of know the difference between the rough work, the foundation work, and the finished work if you've done that. You, you dig a hole to build a house. That's the first thing you do. You dig a hole. You put some rocks, basically liquid rocks, in the ground with some iron and steel, and, and you pour a big slab, and then you start building up some rough framing, and you're not looking for stuff to be super attractive at that point. You're just getting some utilitarian bones there on the foundation. But, but pretty soon you start running into the finish work, and that's the work that's slower and it's more finesse, and there's fewer things visibly happening quickly, but, it, but over time, it, it turns from this kind of ugly, rough structure into, uh, oh, now this bathroom has tile and grout, and now there's, oh, we've caulked the baseboards, which you have to do. I didn't know that. It's the worst. You have to go around and literally caulk every baseboard before you paint it. There's so many little things that you have to do, and Christian grandparenting is kind of like that phase of life where you're not really, like, you're not flinging out kids anymore. You're not putting up walls anymore. Your body's been stretched out and put back together, and it's like there is a no admittance anymore on the womb. There's no more kids happening. We're not doing that. We're not building another house. Okay, but we are going to do some finish work. It's, it's about pressing out the, the, the finishing touches on a godly legacy. And it's essential that, that as you get into that stage of life, that you don't give up. You don't stop. You don't just like, oh, I'm done. Okay, because we're Christians. We don't give up. We run the race with endurance until we die. That's, that's our goal. We run the race. And we do that because, again, we're Christians. We know that God's given us promises. Psalm 92. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Listen to this one. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. A few pages later, Psalm 103, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. Children's children, that's the promises. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God wants us to think about our old age under the banner of his kingdom rule and his promises of pressing righteousness downstream from us and to continue to run the race until we hang it up and get planted in the ground. Okay, so what, what grandparents are doing is essentially they're polishing and taking the final few chips on the statue that they've been cutting out of this big block of marble that's like their life. They're working on finishing well, continuing stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel they heard. All of those, all of those things that they've been doing, they're aiming to not crash at the finish line. The first, the first goal of godly grandparenting has to be continuing stable and steadfast, putting the finishing touches on a legacy, not burning down everything I've built with folly and foolishness, and it's easy to do that if we take our eyes off of Christ in the last decade of our life and just coast and try to say, I'm just going li- to, I was faithful for then, I put in my time, and now it's like, mm, I'm done. We can't do that. That's a, that's a way of making a shipwreck at the end. We want to continue believing the gospel we've believed for some decades now for the last decade, the last couple years, the last till, we, till they plant us in the ground. So number two, the goal of godly grandparenting is taking advantage 
of the compound interest that they've received on a lifelong Christian education and transmitting that wisdom. I'm, I'm working in terms of an ideal here that I know is not everybody. Some people are saved late in life and they don't have this, and that's okay. Think about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. If you work for an hour in the Lord's vineyard and then that's it, you get your denarius, just like the guy who worked eight hours. If you're saved in your 65th year, you get your denarius, just like the guy who was saved when he was four. So uh, some of these I'm working in light of the ideal, but I, I, I'm talking about if you've been a Christian for 50 years, okay, been a Christian for 50 years, and your kids are 30, 40, 50, and your grandkids are, are now rolling down and they're coming into that age where maybe even they're going to start getting married, um, you have compound interest that you've been gaining on a lifelong Christian education that it's time to spend, in a sense. Uh, it's like in, in investing, if, you've, if you have an IRA or you have a uh, 401k and you've invested for a long time, you know that for the first 30 years or 20 years of in your investing, you don't see most of your returns. You, you see most of your returns, and this is the, the glory of compound interest, when you've been saving for 40 years, and, and now your compound interest, it's, it's exponential, it's not linear. It's not like I save a dollar and then I save a dollar the next day, now I have two dollars and now I save another dollar, I have three. It's you do that for 40 years and instead of just adding, you start to do multiplication. And that's what happens with wisdom. That's what happens with our wisdom if we listen to the, to the ways that God talks about old age and those who have worked and have uh, been storing up Lifelong Christian education of battling sin and learning the scriptures and learning the world, um, this apprenticeship to Christ. Titus 2 assumes this. Titus 2, 1 through 6. Again, we're going to read some of the same verses from last time, but backing up to verse 1. He says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, uh, or slaves to much wine. And now it's going to move into, okay, so there's, there's this, we're assuming that we've got these godly older men and women. Now they're going to turn to turning a profit on that. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. We see this intergenerational dynamic of these stores of wisdom now being leveraged downstream. So even to old age, Psalm 71, even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me. Don't forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. As they do this, number three, we see the goal of Christian grandparenting is to function just like motherhood. In a similar way, Christian grandparenting is to function as a force multiplier for the next generations. Remember that concept of force multiplying, uh, something that makes every other aspect of the fight more effective, intelligence on the enemy positions, that, that kind of thing. It's a force multiplier. Uh, the goal of Christian grandparenting is to function like that for your children and your children's children. Um, how many of you guys had godly Christian parents? Raise your hand if you had godly Christian parents. A good handful of you. Some of you didn't. Some of you didn't. How many of you had godly Christian grandparents? Good number of you. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. In, in Utah, if I did that, there'd probably be half as many hands. It's kind of interesting to see. Um, if you came from a first-generation Christian home, and I mean you're the first generation, if you're the first generation, and you've come out of what Peter calls the futility of your forefathers, 
right, where they just, like in, in my family, my parents were, for a lot of purposes, first generation. There were other Christians, but they were really kind of, they were living together. <laughs> the Lord saved them. They got married. They, like, tried to figure out this whole walking with Jesus thing, had us, like, tried to figure it out. They, they didn't have what we had today from them. They didn't have all that extra wisdom built up. They, they were setting things up in a lot of ways. It is absolutely a force multiplier to have two or three generations behind you that have been worshiping the Lord and building godly culture in the homes and traditions. This is one of the reasons it's so foolish to come, come along and be 18, 19, 20-year-old Christians in that kind of stream and just start like getting rid of all the traditions and getting rid of all the stuff your grandparents and your great-grandparents built. It's like you, you don't think you're so wise, young people, to get rid of all of that before you look at it and think, ah, maybe there's something here that I need to look at before I burn this down. Like before I burn down tradition, uh, before I burn down the way they worshiped and gathered and preached and those kinds of things. It's such a force multiplier when you have a grandparent two generations up from you uh, pouring into you. And so getting really practical what this looks like, let's, let's think about this. Let's say you've been a godly man. You've been walking with the Lord for 40 years. You've been aiming to do the things that the Lord says a godly man should do, provide, leave a, a, a legacy of faith to give an inheritance even. I'm talking financial inheritance. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so you're in a place where because of the wisdom that was deposited in your life from, from the Lord and his blessing, you're at a place where you could make a huge difference in your grandchildren's life by paying their tuition to, what, to their Christian school. You know, one of the biggest obstacles, we'd love to start a school at my church, and one of the biggest obstacles is that not many people in our, in our church could honestly afford it. We just, it, it's expensive. If we had two or three generations behind us who were behind the work, it'd be easy it would be like, how, how many schools do you want? You get a school, you get a school. Like, we get to start out. We, we could have gold-plated desks. Like, it'd be not even that difficult. It, it changes things massively when you're pouring in a, a generation or two downstream. You're paying the tuition. You're, you're helping fund the institutions. Uh, you're watching the kids to, to help the parents. Um, you're, you're buying your kids and your grandkids good books. Like, there's so many practical ways that this can land where your goal is to basically say, I want um, my children to be further down the field than I started, but especially by the time they get to their children, man, we can get them way further down the field from the starting point that I had two generations upstream. Um, and, and not being assertive, not uh, being assertive, but not being pushy or overbearing, Way, you know, helping, not kind of dominating, not trying to manipulate your kids, letting your kids be adults, all of that as an, as an asterisk. But, but I want to encourage grandparents not to wait to be asked. Don't wait to be asked. Like, I'm a, I'm a grown son with kids now, and, and I know my parents have blessed us so much in ways that I didn't ask them. I wouldn't ever have asked them to do. I'm not going to like some of the requests, some of the things they've done are just massive helps. I never would have had the audacity to be like, Dad, could you do this for us? And, they, and because they're Christians, they have. And it's a massive help to my kids. Massive help to my kids. Uh, I, I, I do want to give a suggestion here that's not for everybody. In every kind of situation and relationship that can exist between you and grown kids. But, but I, I want to encourage us as young people and as people coming into this age to consider intergenerational home models. Where, and I mean by that um, parents 
moving in with their grown children at certain key stages of their life and of their children's lives. Um, if you have the right kind of relationship and the right kind of like-mindedness, theologically and culturally, again, there's a lot of asterisks there, a, a godly parent, grandparent moving in during the early child-rearing ages can be a huge force multiplier, huge. Um, this, this is common in, I, I know, a, not a Christian family, but my dad works with a Vietnamese man who, uh, a Cambodian man, actually, and his family had fled from Pol Pot's whole, just terrible, lost everything. But hit, the way their household works, which is very common in, in their culture, was that his parents just moved in with them. And they are, like, they didn't move in to be, like, an old folks' home and be like, come take care of me, which we're going to talk about. That's great. That's good. But they were like, no, we're going to, we're here to make this thing help your kids. We're here to help you. We're here to serve you. And they came in as servants. And that household is, it actually puts a lot of Christian households to shame in some ways because of that. And, and I would love to see um, that happen. We're, my, we've been talking to my parents and my wife's parents about this. Like, when you guys, whenever you want, move in. We'll, we'll take you. Like, we'd love to have you. No pressure. They're still on the young side, but let's, let's think that through. And especially as you get older um, and, and begin to need help, I think this can be one of the most godly ways that we can live out the gospel together. This is not contradicting the pattern of Genesis that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This isn't about a man continuing to live with his parents in perpetuity. It's about a man who goes out, establishes his own household, and then invites his parents back in or forming kind of a multi-generational household. Uh, that can be just such a, a potent combination for serving the next generations. Lastly, really practically, one of the goals of Christian grandparenting that you just do see in Scripture is to finish the preparations and stick the landing on leaving a productive inheritance. I'm talking about financial inheritance here, mainly. Leave a legacy of faith, all that assumed and everything we just said. But Solomon, Proverbs 13, 22, he says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, to his grandkids. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Think about that principle in our culture. People who hate wisdom love death. People who hate financial wisdom love financial death. People who hate financial wisdom spend what they don't have to get in a massive debt to buy their idols that they're coveting. That's all death. And so they have no money. They die broke. Because they're godless, they die broke. Some people die broke who are not godless. There are godly poor people. Lots of godly poor people in the Bible. But one of the principles of Proverbs is that the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. While the sinner was doing all of that, the righteous man was fighting idolatry by his greater pleasure in Christ. He wasn't coveting. He wasn't spending his money on things he didn't need because he was an idolater. He, he worshipped God. He was a Christian, so he used his money wisely. And so that sinner's wealth, it was laid up for him. He, he was the one who now owns the apartment complex that the sinner who's too broke to even have a house when he's in his 70s now has to live in. And, in, and it's just very practical. This is the world that God made. There's math involved. God invented math. God loves math. He delights in math. This is one of the places where math shows up in the world. If you love God, you love his wisdom, uh, and you're, you're faithful to not try to get rich quick, not, not be an idolater, but lay up your, your money to invest wisely, uh, you should, all, especially all the men, you should read C.R. Wiley's um, The Man of the House. All of you should read it. I think Jared's read it twice <laughs> in the last six months or something like that. Last three weeks, he's read it twice. I, I read it. I finished it in the last three weeks for the first time. 
You should read The Household and the War for the Cosmos, and you should read uh, The Man of the House by C.R. Wiley, and you should, you know, have a dream to buy an apartment complex <laughs> in your, by the time you're 50 or, you know, something like that. This is the time in your life as a godly grandparent where you can stick the landing if you've had this inheritance of wisdom that has resulted in God's blessing. We're not prosperity theologians, but we're also not going to deny the scriptures where God says things like, Give and it will be given back to you. Pressed down, running over, shaken together will be put into your bosom. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's in the Bible. And its direct object is wealth. Okay? This is no prosperity theology. If you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy. But wise people tend over the long haul, over large sample sizes, to have more money than fools. And Christians, because we love Jesus, we could be really wise. Okay, so, so one of the things I'd encourage... If you are, let's say your grandparent, you've been 401k'ing it, or you're, you're setting up your 401k's now, you're in your 20s and 30s, uh, young men and young ladies, then uh, set, set your life up so that by the time you're ready to, to finish your race, you will have an inheritance to give to your children. And specifically, again, read Wiley's book, it should be a productive inheritance. My goal is not just to hand my children a lot of money, my goal is to hand my children productive inheritance, meaning uh, something like a dividend stock is a good example. I know it's super practical, but something like a dividend stock is a good example. That's a stock that pays a dividend every year in profits. It's like Ford or GE. It's, it's not growing. It, it, it's, it's market saturation. But every year, they're sharing profits. That's, I own this stock. It's making money. It's productive. It's passive income. I own this rental property. It's making money. It's passive income. And so my children actually have to learn how to manage that as they grow up and become godly men and women. And then when I hand it off to them, think about that. We can be so scared of wealth as Christians because of idolatry. But if, if we really trust the Lord and we believe what he says about money, then money can actually become a force multiplier in this work of colonizing and, and reaching the nations. Money funds missions. Money pays pastors. Money builds Notre Dame Cathedral. They probably did that with indulgences, so I'm not going to think about that right now. But <laughs> now that I think about it, let me asterisk, no indulgences or papacy, okay? Papa don't pope. Um, that's part of the goal. You're going to land this thing with inheritance. Okay, counterfeits, independent, grandparent who won't accept help, gets old, won't give up the car keys, won't admit weakness, won't accept aging, um, refuses to move out of their house, makes their whole... So I've seen parents who are old and refuse to move, and it, it actually leads to their children being stuck in a location, in a, in a market where they can't make a living, where they're, they're not able to join a good church because of multiple forces, and they're just stuck there caring for 95-year-old Nana because she won't listen. Okay, don't... Set your life up so that you can guard yourself against the normal processes of age so that you can have decisions made for you if need be, if you've lost that capacity, which is let's be honest and humble about ourselves and our own weaknesses. Set yourself up so your children can serve you and love you. They don't have to stick you in a home, but they also don't have to uh, just linger there. They're able to say, Mom, Dad, come into our home. Let us take care of you. Let us move you close to us. Set you up with some property you can manage. Um, independent. It'd be counterfeit. Vacationer, okay, don't, vacations are fine. It's okay when you retire to get an RV, totally fine. Take your grandkids out in it, boom, force multiplier, okay? <laughs> but don't just build a bunch of little gods in your garage and then go worship them, 
Ha, I've been so wise. I've lived like no other so I can live like no other. I, I like Dave Ramsey. Don't hear me wrong. But now I'm going to live like no other. And, they don't, and, and some people don't mean I'm going to leave a godly legacy. They mean I am going to now do everything I wanted to do in my 20s. It's like, do your best work when you're there. Again, vacations are fine. Just use them. Leverage them. Don't be a miser, a hoarder. Don't, don't try to avoid legacy to your kids. Like, don't try to spend all the money you possibly can. Uh, don't be a meddler, meddling in your kids' affairs where you're like, you've just, you have, have to have a say. We all know what I'm talking about. I won't go on and on about it. And, and don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. If we do our job well, our kids could actually be wiser than us. Isn't that lame? <laughs> they could actually show up at your, call you, hi, 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 son, how's it going? Dad, I just wanted to talk to you about something I heard was going on and you know, I've got some biblical wisdom for you, and you should, you know, maybe you need to repent. How, who do you think you are? <laughs> oh, no, this is success. I've succeeded. I've made a godly man. And now he's wise, and I'm going to listen to him. Okay? Just food for thought. Gospel. Final thing. You have an opportunity that is really important in the last decades of your life, and that's to make eye contact with, your death, with death and faith publicly, in front of your family and kids, to teach them how to die well. Okay, All of us could die tomorrow, but if the way of things continues, the, the, we're like, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, Psalm 90, verse 12. Um, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, though we have dementia, or though I have cancer, or though I, whatever it is. Our inner self's being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but those which are unseen. Things that are un- the things that are seen are transient, like health and age and vigor. Those are transient. Things that are unseen are eternal. Isaiah 46.4, even to your old age, I am he, and to, your gray- and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save Okay, we're really good at avoiding looking at death full on. We need to be better at it. And, and the last decades are a good time to do it. Talk to your kids about your own death. To talk about it with a smile and in faith. Finishing the race well, saying, um, I, am going to, I am going to die uh, with my life given away, my legacy left, uh, my body used up, and I'm going to die with faith. I'm going to lay it all down. I'm going to pay for my own funeral so my kids don't have to. And then I'm going to say, I'll see you in the resurrection. I'm, just plant me right here, and I'm, a, I'm going to grow back up sometime in, in glory. Plant me right here. Okay? So l- let me leave you with this. Proverbs 17.6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Okay? Be a glory to your children. Be a glory to your grandchildren. As they crown your life, you be a glory to them. You be a glory to them. See your offspring and be glad. Pour in. Give yourself away. Run your race with endurance to the end. And you will see enemies trembling before your legacy as you yourself can no longer hold the bow, but all of your arrows are now standing there and their arrows are standing there saying, you know, if you want him, come and claim him. Kind of like the, the Lord of the Rings moment in the movie, which is exactly the note I wanted to end this whole conference on. Lord of the Rings. No. <laughs> run, run to the end in faith, and, and all of us 
we'll, we'll, we'll say in the end that everything that we gave up, every, every instance of our own death to self was absolutely worth it in the return that God gave from us and from our bodies.